history happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, episode 44, Smell in Uzbekistan, during 1876 to 2007. So if you haven't listened to that, go back, check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. I have some fossilised dinosaur faeces. Hello and welcome to History Happen Everywhere, The Verdict. My name is Ryan Weir and I am here, as always, in the studio with the vodka to my tonic. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Oh, I'm the vodka. That's exciting. I think I'm the most important part of the drink there then. <laughs> yeah. But with us, as always, the lemony sourness in the glass. It's HHE's diabolically delicious dreamboat. It's Judge Dursley. I beg your pardon. You are a dreamboat, Dursley, admit it. You are our dreamboat. What is a dreamboat? You're a pin-up. Yeah. Pin- <laughs> You're on the, on the walls of teens everywhere. <laughs> so look, I really enjoyed last week's episode, Pete, but I am really struggling to remember all of the very interesting information that was presented to us. I don't suppose you'd be averse to perhaps reminding everyone, like, you know, would you? Perhaps about what all the things that happened, maybe within like 60 seconds. 60 seconds? Confines? I'll give it a go. Would you like me to start? Do it now. We voyaged over to Central Asia along the Silk Road to Uzbekistan, where we discovered a nation in love with bread, not only making it, which we had a go at, but developing elaborate rules, regulations and ceremonies all centred around their daily bread. We also learned that Uzbekistan was melon country, with hundreds of varieties grown and a history of exporting the juicy fruit all around the world, as far back as the 9th century, packing melons into lead boxes filled with ice to be hauled to palaces of czars and emperors. And finally, we discovered the foul smell of corruption and the history of the Western world's embrace of Uzbekistan as an ally the war on terror after 9-11, conveniently overlooking a track record of repression and human rights abuses until one British ambassador dared to tell the truth. And in the end, he paid the price for it. That was last week's episode done. Summarised nicely, nice one, son. Now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of the He'll take you apart without any care. He's the lovely Paul Dursley. The lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes. Yes, I remember it all now. It all comes flooding back, doesn't it, after that little prompt? (laughs) Oh, what a great episode that was. But look, you know what? What does it matter what my opinion is? We're not here for me. It's the opinion of the judge that we are here so gathered. (laughs) (laughs) So, Paul, get the ball rolling for us. Tell us, what did you think of episode 44? I think the topic of smell was the best topic I think you've had. Oh, Oh, really? Well, it's, it's, this sounds like a paradox, but it's sort of abstruse but concrete. You know, smell, everything has a smell. It's sort of the deepest sense, whatever. Yet you really don't think of it as something. Yeah, they say smell is very connected to memory as well, don't they? So actually, for my one-minute summary, I should have just wafted some bread over it, Ryan, and gone, there you go. <laughs> it all comes back to you <laughs> now, doesn't it? Done, yeah. <laughs> well, is it, isn't smell quite an old sense in the sense that it is wired into sort of an old reptilian part of the brain? So it goes in very quickly. It's very primal, isn't it, as you yes. say? it's smell kind of is a real trigger in a way that less so sights and sounds are. 
Well, if you think of a baby, right, it's probably one of its most useful senses. Babies often aren't able to see. The hearing might not be that that clear at that point. Compare us to dogs and other more sniffy animals. Yeah. We're kind of rubbish at smelling, aren't we? But yes. it's still very powerful for us. Yeah, it is. I can just remember a few years ago, I smelt this sort of polish and it took me back to primary school, specifically sitting in the hallway, cross-legged on the floor, and the floor had of this was just after a holiday, so the floor had obviously been cleaned and buffed over the holiday. And I just remember that, you know, it took me back to when I was five or six. It was amazing. You're absolutely right, and it's a wonderful experience. And do you know what? It often hits me just completely apropos of nothing. Like, I'll be walking down the street, and just the sudden smell will remind me of, a I don't know, a time when I was a child running through the street or something. you know it just it, it it just hits you out of nowhere but this feels a bit cruel peter you don't have this opportunity because smell as you rightly pointed out during the episode you you don't you don't have you don't enjoy yeah, I'm, the... I'm very stunted smell wise i do have a sense of smell but it has to really be strong to cut through so you you see i'm colorblind so you're smell blind yeah. yeah. So I and I my hearing's not great. So between so the three we've of us, we've had one whole person. <laughs> <laughs> At least our eyes are okay. <laughs> but I did some research because I, I wanted to understand. Well, why don't you smell? <laughs> like, what is smell for a start? Because I, I suddenly thought, well, what is it? It's the receptors in your nose, isn't it? That recept or that that sort of take the smell and generate signals straight into the brain. Right, but what is smell? That was the bit that I was curious about. Well, it's chemicals. So when I looked it up, it said it was volatile molecules of a substance. For instance, a cut lemon which mingles with the air. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean, Paul? Well, a, volat- a volatile molecule means a molecule that's carried it within the air. So what happens is when you cut a lemon, there will be molecules in that lemon. Or when you scratch the skin of a lemon... It will release the molecules of the oil. They're light enough to be carried in the air and they will go up your nose and your nose sort of basically has receptors of different shapes and those shaped receptors will get the molecule and basically break it down and give you an indication of what the the smell is. And so that sends a message to your brain to say, this is lemon. Yes. As opposed to orange or to grass or anything else. Absolutely. And uh, uh, so what's your sense of taste like then, Pete? Relatively blunt, to be I was going to say, because a lot of taste is smell. They sort of work together, don't they? Yeah, you're, that is one of the reasons you will frequently find me applying hot sauces and things to, mm. to various dishes to try and cut through to the, the sensation, if yeah. you like. And there's different types, isn't there? A spectrum of smell blindness. Uh, there, there are things like smelling things that are not there, Ooh. which is interesting. Phantosmia. Phantosmia. Yeah, osmia is smelling, isn't it? Because anosmia is can't smell can't anything. smell anything. Yeah. So phantosmia is like smelling smoke or burnt toast. You're like, I can smell burnt toast, but Ooh. no one else can smell it. Reduced sense of smell. Hyposmia. That's probably me. That sounds like it, doesn't it? Ozone is a very redolent smell. When you when you smell ozone, there are various ways it's produced uh, one way is sort of electrical discharges so if you're playing with the model train set for example you always yeah. get that ozone smell because there are a lot of sparks that break the air down and also just after it's rained after a, a, a hot or dry spell you get that smell coming up mm. and that is ozone as well it's a, an amazingly lovely smell absolutely 
Uh, Peter, I was curious as to why you don't smell. So I looked into this reasons and rationale for why you don't smell. And it seems that obviously if those molecules aren't getting into your nose, that that might be a reason for your smell blindness. And that can be due to inflammation, due to sinusitis or, you know, any kind of allergies that you might have. Basically just the nasal cavity being blocked. And that then made me think of those people that are suffering from COVID-19 smell blindness. And researchers have discovered that basically the proteins on the surface of the nerve cell in the nose detect the molecules associated with the odour, but experiments show that the presence of the virus near those nerve cells brought like an inrushing of immune cells and cover the nerve cells, thinking it's an infection. Those cells then release proteins that change the genetic activity of those nerve cells and where immune cell activity would disappear quickly in other scenarios in the brain, immune signaling persists in a way that reduces the activity of genes needed for the building of olfactory receptors. Does that mean anything to you, Paul? Well, they, they, it sounds like it's sort of acting as a bit of a cloak or a coat around them so you can't smell them because the, the immune system has sort of all put something on that takes the smell away or hides well, uh, the smell. It, it changed the genetic activity of the nerve cells, it said. I don't know what genetic activity of nerve cells means. Yeah, no, nor do I. Anyway, um, it's said that those that suffer from uh, COVID, lo- that have a loss of smell, uh, it can improve within four weeks uh, of the virus clearing the body. But in most cases, that's 80% of the cases, it takes up to two months for your sense of smell to come back. 95% of patients regain their smell after six months. So there are some people who lose their smell Is it like a 100% loss of smell? Can't smell a thing? I I guess so. 5% of people, I guess, just don't get that back or haven't so far. Or is it, you know, or is it sort of like Pete with the the smell blindness? You can smell turd and coffee, but anything in between, you can't. I wouldn't recommend turd and coffee together. Well, actually, they do go together, don't they? What, What about civet coffee? Civet coffee, of course. That's cat poop. It's more of a weasley kind of creature. Oh, okay. uh, I saw yes, some civets when I was on holiday once and uh, they are rather cute, huh. but I wouldn't fish their beans out of their <laughs> excrement. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, point being, Pete, there are some things that you can do, right? You can go to your doctor, which is obviously recommended if you if you can't smell after, I think, three weeks. If you lose your smell and you're still not smelling anything after three weeks, medical advice is seek a medical practitioner. However, you can also do smell training. Smell training? Smell oh, training. Now so this is montage. <laughs> so this... <laughs> right. If you sniff the same four scents, and that's clove, rose, eucalyptus, and lemon, in turn, Every day, basically spend around 20 seconds smelling each scent and really concentrating on that scent for 20 seconds until you've done all four, your smell can start to improve. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, I'm not going to embark on a a nose training program, I don't think, but it's nice to know I have the option should I decide it's going to come back. (laughs) I'll let you into a little secret. I've had a nose job. Oh, really? And you look beautiful for it. Well, it, it was it was it was for medical reasons, not cosmetic. So, what did they do? Well, they gave me a general anaesthetic and did something up there. Do you know what they did up there? They could have done anything to him when he was under. Did they pull out some Lego? Because that apparently is something that happens to some people <laughs> that they lose their sense of smell since childhood, and it's because they had Lego in there. No, I didn't have that. But it, the odd thing was it was sort of related to sneezing and those sort of allergies. So perhaps perhaps you have a deviated septum, Pete. Maybe, maybe.
I would like to talk about telephones, Peter, because the time period that the Dursleta gave you, which was 1876, I believe, to 2007, the first telephone to the iPhone. That's right. Okay, so tell me a bit about telephones. So the first phone which is 1876, as you rightly point out, frequently attributed to Alexander Graham Bell. He's the kind of classic primary school learner. Quite disputed in actual fact. Oh, yeah. A bunch of other people were working on it at the same time, and there's some bickering. There's a chap called Antonio Miucci and a lady called Elisha Gray, Mm -hmm. who also claimed to have already invented it first. But Graham Bell got the all-important patent in first, and his patent describes an apparatus for transmitting vocal or other sounds telegraphically. But it all happened around the same time. All, all of those people that you mentioned, they were all trying to create the phone around the same time period. Absolutely. And some say that the other guys actually got there first. There hmm. was some... Alexander Graham Bell was a, a bit of a sneaky character by some accounts. Come in here, Mr. Watson. Exactly. That was the first words that he spoke to his assistant on this telephone. Wait, his assistant had a phone as well? Yeah, just the one phone on his own. <laughs> <laughs> Not that useful. That's <laughs> just a tin can. Okay. <laughs> why did he why did he make that statement? That he wants him. It's quite yeah. sexy, isn't it? It was the the under the final words he could do it on the phone. No one's listening. Yeah, he's no one. Was, clearly, the, the phone wasn't line. tapped. There was nobody else to tap it, was there? So he, the, the, well, he had spilt some acid on his trousers. That's what he said. Yeah, <laughs> that's why off. there were no trousers on Watson. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear. First, just straight out of the chats with a sex line. He's <laughs> But yes, in 2007, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. He described it as an iPod, a phone, an internet communicator. But did it have an elegant, chunky wooden box? No. No, unlikely. In that regard, it is less impressive than the original first phone. Ah, it was more portable, though. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's phones. So, do you want to talk about Uzbekistan or not? Yeah, we probably should at some point. Yeah, let's... I'd rather talk about melons. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because I want to give credit to Ryan for getting through an entire episode where I repeatedly said long melons, and uh, he didn't snigger and giggle much. Well, much. <laughs> I was going to say once. But well, I was. Uh... I was going to say he might not have sniggered, but I did. <laughs> Why is melons so funny? Well, it's puerile, I know, but. It's still funny. Yeah. In my world, all melons are juicy. And come in pairs, I don't doubt. Well, all pears are lovely and all melons are juicy. I looked it up and it is fairly universal, a, a euphemism. <laughs> I wonder why. Melons are pretty much across the globe. Well, I'm sure bananas are as well. I was interested to see. <laughs> so I was doing a lot of searching online. <laughs> I can't imagine your search history is the better for it. <laughs> what happened when you typed juicy melons into the internet? Well, I'll encourage you to go and Google that yourself and find out. Um, did you know that botanically a melon is actually a type of berry? Is it really? Yeah, for real. Yeah, it's a type of berry called a pepo, which is why in Greece, the Greek name for a melon is a peponi. Please, please, please tell me you got that from the big book of Uzbeki melons that we were talking about. <laughs> that would have made that dry book a lot more interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. They don't have a lot of calories, I read. They're good as a snack food if you're on a diet. Uh, low in saturated fat and in cholesterol. Good source of dietary fibre, vitamin K, potassium, copper... 
good source of vitamin C and vitamin B6. I've never worried about my copper intake before. (laughs) (laughs) Got to have your copper. Um, But were you feeling flush? You might want to rush over to Japan and buy yourself a Yuberi King which is a type of melon and is the most expensive melon in the world, the Yubari King. Uh, It grows only in this one small region of Japan and uh, two of these melons recently sold for more than 20,000 US dollars. No way. Just two melons. Sounds like a very good marketing exercise. Yeah, I'm not sure the the melon exists that would make me part with 20,000 pounds. <laughs> I don't know. It looks pretty tasty to me. Well, Uzbekistan was very proud of their melons. I think Uzbekistan and Japan need to have a melon off. Melon versus melon. <laughs> and whoever loses would become melancholic. Hey! So let's talk about Uzbekistan. Yes. Um, I was surprised to learn that it was as corrupt as the picture you painted. Yeah, very much down to the one guy. I mean, obviously everyone exists in a system, but the, the one chap was there before, the, during the Soviet Union, after the Soviet Union, and till, literally till the day he died, he was in control of the country and he had a very uh, clear sense of what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was close the country off and control everything. And that was very clear because, like, as we said during the episode, I, I, we knew nothing about Uzbekistan, right? Prior yeah, he, to this, he was very successful in that regard, wasn't he? There's that no genuinely, doubt. though, there is very little that it's famous for outside of Uzbekistan. Um, Paul, have you ever been there? No, I've not. The well, I suppose the, the only things I really knew about it were Tashkent, which was more from the Soviet times as a Soviet city, has a sort of spy novel air to it. Just uh, the exactly, word itself, I think it? it was in a spy novel that I did read about Tashkent. It's one of those like Samarkand isn't it Samarkand Tashkent they're very evocative names and I did know about the Fergana Valley because it's sort of it's one of those areas that's sort of really fertile and so you've got lots of different countries trying to get a bit of the action because you sort of look at Uzbekistan it's a weird shape isn't it it's like all all of the people live in this sort of like tiny little bit on the um, eastern side Mm -hmm. which is quite small and there's an enormous western side of it that goes all the way almost to the Caspian Sea which is as you said the 80% of the country which is just desert. So I, I do want to put your mind slightly at resto Ryan uh, talking about the repression and uh, Karimov's robust approach I think the phrase was to management of his country so he was replaced by a, call, a guy called Mirza Yuryev uh, in uh, when he died 2016 I think it was off the top of my head anyway yeah. But since then, he is a bit of a reformer. So he's loosened up some of the trade restrictions so you can trade a little bit more okay. easily with Uzbekistan. The One of the characteristics of being a university student in the days of Karimov were you would be forced to work in the cotton fields for the harvest. And okay. so uh, it's actually in Craig Murray's book where he goes to visit university and there's no one there because they've all been basically forced labour into the fields for for the season of the harvest. So that's been stopped by this new the new president. He shut down the more horrible prisons that were sort of emblematic of the corruption and the torture. So they have a reformer in charge to some extent, although, as we said, in his last election, he did win another 80-some percent majority. So, you know, in terms of his sense of wanting to stay in control is very much sort of the protégé of Kerimov. But it's kind of some good news, at least, for Uzbekistan today. So it's a bit more encouraging, I think. I didn't want to leave it just completely on that bleak note that we did. 
One of the things that I was curious about when, you know, we're thinking about uh, smell is hygiene. How do you keep yourself clean on the Silk Road? Right. How do you stop yourself from sm- smelling? <laughs> Basically, you're yeah, riding a camel. Especially with camels, which are famously not the most perfumed creatures right? in the world. <laughs> and you're you're just traveling on the back of a camel or walking alongside it for mile after mile after mile. In the desert sun. In the desert sun. So, like, how are you keeping yourself clean? So I did I did a little bit of research about, about hygiene on the Silk Road. Um, but what I did discover is, is that there was some attempts at keeping themselves clean after using the toilet. Early travellers along the Silk Road, so you know, two thousand years ago, they used bamboo sticks wrapped in scraps of cloth to wipe themselves clean. I'm glad you added the, the cloth toilet. to that. I had uh, a foreboding instead of just a bamboo <laughs> stick. Uh, no, well, but they, that, so, that's that's like the Romans. They used to have sponges on a stick, didn't they? But they were re- they were reusable because you sort of dipped them in the water to wipe off somebody else's first, and then used it yourself. Yes. Well, so I mean, the fact that they found them in latrine pits in a, a number of dozen you know gives the impression that these things were somewhat disposable rather than being reusable but then scraps of cloth indicate maybe you just replace the cloth you keep the stick and replace the scrap of cloth but some samples of the feces that had been found on these bamboo sticks uh, were scraped off and they sent it to a laboratory in cambridge in the uk and analysis of this feces revealed eggs from four species of parasites roundworm, whipworm, tapeworm, and liver fluke. Uh, so basically, they would have been carrying this parasite along with them on the journey. I mean, that's uh, a hard road at the best of times, but shifting a bunch of tiny friends with you. <laughs> that is exactly right. Apparently, some of these parasites would have caused the host to be a pretty unhappy traveller with symptoms including fever, pain, diarrhoea, and jaundice. Oh, my Lord. So just to really help add to the flavour of your journey. <laughs> I have to say, I can Road. imagine some junior archaeologist who's seen Indiana Jones and thinks, I'm going to run through <laughs> tunnels chased by boars and capture my hat from a sliding door. First day on the job. Ah, Timothy, <laughs> I've got a job for you. <laughs> We are rapidly approaching the verdict, but before we do, I did want to mention that I had to excise a section of the podcast while I was doing the edit. So I was wondering whether or not you could perhaps recap, because it was a great piece of information. I can. In 2012, in the opulent Ichan Kala Hotel, there is a launch party going on, and this is the launch of a perfume called Mysterious. Nice. A perfume that's made by a chap called Bertrand Duchaufour, a relatively big name in the world of perfumes, but this particular brand is for a young woman called Gulnara. Side note, he also added, I'm perhaps the first man in the history of perfumery who has tried to link France and Uzbekistan through perfume. Like, Probably. Yeah, I suspect he was the first to even try. Uh, anyway, the uh, the same night, there were viewers watching a video of an Uzbek pop singer called Gugusha, but then look closely at Gulnara and you think she looks a lot like that Gugusha woman. Who is this woman of marvel and mystery? Well, the surname Karimov is a big part of it. <laughs> right, okay. Gulnara Karimov is the daughter of Islam Karimov and pretty much a nasty piece of work in the same way as her father was. She was described by the US diplomats as a robber baron and the single most hated person in the country. Nice. Uh, and she was head of a large business in inverted commas, also known as Mafia Empire. 
Mm-hmm. She took uh, one estimate $800 million in various bribes for the telecommunications empire and was generally a bad sort. Fortunately, I guess, came a bit of a cropper because she had a falling out with her dad uh, and he kind of withdrew a lot of his support. But she lost all of her jobs, basically. She disappears from the social scene and she gets arrested, sentenced for 10 years in jail for fraud and money laundering. And she is to this day in prison. Interesting. Relating to the episode as a whole, I I would have liked more literal smell and less metaphorical smell. Yeah, I was slightly disappointed that I couldn't bring more actual smells to the table, which isn't something I say very frequently. (laughs) So here we are. We have come to the end of the line. Oh dear. It is time for you to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Oh, is it going to be fresh bread or corruption stink? Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then will the defendant please rise. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on... Classification 1. Factual content. Ah, well, given that nobody knows anything about Uzbekistan, it had to be incredibly factual, so I'll give it a... B. Yes! Your Honour, classification 2. Entertainment value, please. May we have your verdict? I think your little skits were quite entertaining. I would give it a... B minus... Your Honour, may we please have your verdict for Classification 3, Dursley Factor. E minus. Corruption at the highest levels. Shut up! (laughs) Take take him down. He's taking bribes. It's not about bribes. Freedom! It's all about bribes. in the court. It's all about bribes. You're on a... We're on record. That will be struck from the record. Can we please have some order in this court? I'm turning into the judge here. Right. Okay. E minus, was that? Yes. For Dursley Factor. Okay. And so we reach the final verdict. Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes. In which case, I would ask you most respectfully for your ruling. Uh, the verdict is... C minus. Peter, immediate reaction. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. Right, well, there we are. Peter, you walk from here with a C minus. And so we turn our attention to the next episode, uh, episode 45, and it's one that I will be taking on, tackling its procrastination in Benin during 1850 to 1900. Paul, you looking forward to it? Well, I suppose you don't actually have to do an episode, do you? Yes, I could just forget to do it or do it at the very last minute and you'll get like a five minute episode. (laughs) An essay crisis episode. Yeah. No, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Procrastination. I'm excited to see what you do with it. You always pull something out of the bag that's an interesting angle that I didn't see coming. So um, once again, 
excited and uh, just on tenterhooks. Mm. Well, that is, sadly, all that we have for this week's episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, and we've talked about an awful lot of things, and I'm sure you've got your opinion, so just get in touch and say hello. Uh, you can do that on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured, starring in a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation really helps us bring the show to new listeners. If you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or all the social media, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to us there, you'll get a little alert every time we do one of our little one-minute animated HHE Bite videos. That's right, and we're going to be back again soon with our very next episode. But in the meantime, if you can't get enough of the show, you can check out the back catalog of episodes there's 44 of them now uh you can find those in your podcast app on youtube or on our website hhepodcast.com all right so a huge thank you to the judge himself thank you paul i'm still hungry um and that's it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to okay so i think i found the perfume pete oh yes yeah i think it's available online you can buy it uh it's 88 euro uh, yeah, 100ml of uh, Shogam Mizdiriez uh, Eau de Parfum. It's described as having the top notes of grapefruit, ylang-lang, uh, honey, and lily of the valley, with middle notes of jasmine, gulak wood, cedar, patchouli, and rose. Are you any the wiser, Pete? Not really, uh, particularly with <laughs> ylang-lang, a word I've never quite known how to lang, pronounce. Lang, yeah, <laughs> yeah lang uh, it says here, the Shogun leads by his nobility to a legendary past, a notable east of extreme delicacy, where princes set the tone for a refined art of living. It has seven perfumes in the fragrance world. The earliest edition was created in 2013. Oh, and also, the creator is now in prison. <laughs> also, sorry about the torture. <laughs> and who writes this bollocks? I've done things like that in my time. In fact, yeah. people like me is the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> But surely a watermelon is a watermelon is a watermelon.